Well, I should uh, just repeat, actually, the, the fact that we've been on long service leave. That's an important context. I've been given 20 minutes to talk about biblical theology of leadership. Now, I haven't preached for three months. And so the possibility of me, with three months of preaching, waiting to burst forth, <laughs> doing something in 20 minutes is pretty slim. So I've got three months of sermons ready to boil out. So just settle in. We'll see how we go. Now, I've been asked to talk about leadership, the theology of leadership, which is a really helpful topic uh, because it invites you to consider what I'm going to call eschatological leadership. Eschatological leadership. Uh, Leadership that is aware of the movement of time in God's purposes. Eschatological leadership. How are we to lead given the time that we're in? Uh, All of which makes clear the kind of leadership we're about, is uniquely Christian. And I want to bang on this a few times shortly. What we do as Christian leaders is unique in the world. You cannot go to a business conference on leadership and work out how to be a leader as a Christian. Uh, What we do in the Christian community as Christian leaders is unique. Uh, It's unique among religions too, uh, and I'll show you some of that in a second as well. Uh, Christian leadership is profoundly unique And we need to keep sharpening our sense of that truth so that as we do plunder the Egyptians, which is right to do, uh, we need to be aware with a very, uh, bring a great critical care to that task as we plunder secular leadership principles. So a quick review of the Bible, and we haven't got time to look it all up because uh, they've only given me 20 minutes, uh, and then some observations about the uniqueness of our role. Let me start in the garden. You go back to Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, what's clear is that leadership is built into the fabric of humankind. Uh, Adam and Eve, though created equal, of course, uh, there is a difference in the order of relationships. There is headship and there is the helper and submission built into the nature of that first couple. As the families grew uh, through those early parts of the Bible, of course, you get the families increasing in size And the Old Testament demonstrates a growth of the role of leadership with the patriarchs who exercise leadership over their families and over a much larger group indeed from that. But with Moses, a more explicit kind of leadership forms. It does also form in the context of a biblical word, which I think is helpful to understand the movement through to eschatological leadership, the word shepherd. Now, it's a word that's very familiar. It's an obvious category in the ancient world for leadership. Uh, most typically, it was the shepherd who gave the orders to the sheep. So it kind of makes sense as a, an expression of leadership, uh, but it also carries wonderful categories, beautiful categories for leadership because it conveys far more than leading. It conveys a sense of concern for those that are led, care, protection, feeding, nurture. These things are captured by this wonderful word, shepherd. Now, the language is first applied to God very early on, Genesis chapter 48. He is the shepherd of God's people. You get the uh, patriarchs talking about him being my shepherd all my life and, of course, celebrated through the Psalms with that most wonderful Psalm, Psalm 23. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So it's, kind of a, it's a great category. It's a wonderful category for the Lord God himself. But it's also applied to Moses. So Psalm 77, verse 20. Isaiah 63, verse 11, you get this, and in other places you get this category applied to Moses, the shepherd of my people. Uh, And the leaders that follow also embrace this category, have this category applied to them. Numbers 27, you actually get the expression of um, uh, Moses speaking about the desire to see 
the people led so that they might not be sheep without a shepherd and Joshua is the one appointed to take that task. Um, much of this is then formalised in the establishment of the monarchy, preeminent of course and that is David who in wonderful words of Psalm 78 is talked about as the one who is taken from being a literal shepherd of real sheep to the shepherd of God's people. And that's a role that he exercised. The language of shepherd stands out also in God's condemnation of the leaders of Israel. You'll be very familiar with this, I trust, Ezekiel 34, um, where there's a very strong sense of judgment upon the shepherds of Israel who, instead of feeding God's sheep, fed themselves uh, and failed in their task. Uh, And so the language of shepherd becomes the basis of a promise for the future, where God himself... And Ezekiel 34 verse 11 is emphatic in this, where I myself will come and shepherd my people. A very strong sense of I will feed them, I will rescue them, I myself will be the shepherd. Now it's powerful because he has always been the shepherd, but there's been human shepherds as well. But the future expectation is that God now will come and he will be the one who comes close to be the shepherd of God's people. Now, this is, of course, fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And John 10 links wonderfully to that condemnation passage, the promise of the coming of God. He is the good shepherd, the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And finally, it's brought to its consummation in the vision of Revelation. And I thought we would look this one up. Come Have a look at Revelation 7. You get this, uh, don't you love the imagery of the Bible where um, uh, it kind of mixes and matches and it's extraordinary. Come, have, Revelation 7 is full of this, Revelation's full of this, Revelation 7. Let me see if I can find it quickly too. Um, yeah, have a look at verse 16. Uh, the ones who are before the throne of God to serve him day and night. Verse 16, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. You have the lamb, the sheep, now become the shepherd of the sheep, which is just a wonderful classic revelation image, isn't it? But you've got this beautiful picture of he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this kind of promise in the Old Testament of this anticipation of the time when God himself will come close and take on the role of being the shepherd of his people. Consummated finally, of course, fulfilled in Jesus, consummated finally, of course, in Revelation, where we are now with God. He is among us. uh, An extraordinary picture. And the Lamb of God is revealed to be this shepherd, the one at the centre of the universe. Now, quick run through. But throughout it all, there is this tension. You may have noticed it already. God is the shepherd of his people, and always was, and yet various human leaders are to shepherd his people. So the Old Testament, Moses is the shepherd, but behind him, above him, beneath him is God, the true shepherd. The king of Israel, David, is called to shepherd Israel, but you'll be very aware, I trust, there's a tension with that role, so that when the people call on David to be their king, or call on God to give them a king, there's grief over that very activity, isn't there? There's grief that, firstly, of course, because they want to be like the nations around them and have a king. We're not to be like the nations around us. 
But secondly, because as God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, but rejecting me, who is their king and shepherd. The tension in the Old Testament, I take it, is that there are human leaders, there are shepherds that God has appointed, but there's a sense in which God longs to be the one. Like a mother, a father who has entrusted their children to a nanny, but longs to be there instead of the nanny, longs to be close with his people and longs to have them look directly to him and be there to wipe the tears from their eyes instead of the nanny doing the wiping, you see. Longs to be close. And I want to encourage you actually to capture the heart of God in that. Ezekiel 34, that promise has that feel to it, that the God who has a heart for you and his people wants to be there with you, close, intimate, and have you... Trust him and walk with him, not the leader, but with him. His heart is that his people would look to him and follow him. And the glory of the Christ event, of course, is Emmanuel. God now with us. In fulfilment of that beautiful picture of the shepherd who comes close. The glory of the new covenant people is that there is now a new intimacy, a direct relationship, closeness between us, the people, and our God, our shepherd. There's something that every member of God's people shares by the Spirit of Christ who is with us. We share this intimacy together. We need no intermediaries anymore. It's the glory of the cross event that we now have a religion like no other. We have a religion without priest, without temple, without sacrifice, without holy days, without ritual. There is this wonderful democratization of the people of God through the work of Christ to each pour out to pour out the Spirit upon each of us so that we can all call God Abba Father. We can have this intimate walk with Him directly through the work of Jesus. And I want to encourage us never to get over that radical new thing that God has done. It's unheard of in human history. It's unheard of among the religions of the world. A religion without these things. So that Acts chapter 2 has always struck me with that picture of the people who share all things in common. It's this wonderful um, highlight, climactic expression of, do you see what God has achieved? We are now one with God, each of us, together, freed to love. Never get over this radical truth. And revelation is the consummation of this new experience that God has established for us in Christ. There is no need for light because God himself is our light. There's no temple. There's... We are now close with our God whose heart is for us. Now, the tension with this flow of thought is that you could easily imagine that it's wrong, therefore, within the Christian community to therefore have human shepherds. And you can actually see how some have led this direction, 1 John 2. Um, we have the anointing, therefore we need no one to teach us. There's a sense in which God has now come close. He is with us by his spirit. Uh, And so the the kind of shape and structure of church life, of, of this religious community, is profoundly different. We don't need that intermediary anymore. But... But you see the tension? Um, The New Testament does speak very clearly of appointing leaders, of elders, overseers. And the Old Testament 
spoke not only the promise of God himself being our shepherd in the future, though he was, he would be close and he would be... It not only spoke of that in Ezekiel, but in Jeremiah, it spoke of him appointing many shepherds, plural. And to be a leader amongst God's people is to be the fulfilment of that promise in Jeremiah. The tension is that God now is close as shepherd and yet he has appointed human shepherds still nonetheless. Let me now give you four thoughts that flow from this that grow out of the eschatological context within which we do leadership in the Christian community. I think there's four. I'll give you the first one. They go fairly quickly. The uniqueness of Christian leadership is, for want of better expression, temporary and pragmatic in its nature. Christian leadership exists to point people to their true shepherd, Jesus. We lead a people who are on trust to us from their great shepherd. Now you get this, of course, from the oft-repeated truth that the people we lead belong to another. Uh, um, Acts chapter 20, uh, you have that wonderful expression, don't you? Acts chapter 20, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, uh, keep watch of yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Um, Be shepherds of the church which he bought with his own blood. Now there's an insight into what our task is, isn't it? To be shepherds, yes, of this community, which is God's community, bought by him with his own blood, given to us on trust by the great shepherd. Those insights clarify what we are and give some sobriety to what we do, but heightened by the realisation that our leadership is towards a people following its true shepherd. I, as a Christian leader, I don't stand over the people. There's a sense in which I stand alongside them, leading them to see with me our true shepherd, our great shepherd. Did you see? That's a different orientation and a profoundly important one for Christian leadership. We aren't the head of our organisations, the church. Christ is. We are under shepherds. Drink deeply of these things. We therefore lead very differently to secular leaders Jesus himself teaches this. You begin to see all the teaching of the New Testament kind of slide in. Um, uh, you know how the rulers of this age lorded over those under them. Not so with you. Do you see? We had to be very different. We exercise our gifts of leadership as one member of the body, serving as every other member seeks to serve to bring us to know our great shepherd. That's a small thing, but I love sitting in church before I preach. I had this, uh, I, was, I was sitting in church before church started and a, a, new, a lady came, uh, sat next to, I think Kathy, was, Kathy and I were sitting, and she kind of sat next to us and, uh, and I said, how are you? She said, oh, yeah, I'm new here. And I said, oh yeah. And she said, what's this church like? <laughs> and I said, um, oh, look, there's lots of really good things. The preaching, oh, you've got to watch that. It sucks often. And, um, and she said, oh, okay. And then the preaching came and, 
It was me who got up to preach, and she's never gotten over that. She tells that story everywhere she goes now, that the preacher actually... So, But I love that. I love being with the people as I get up then to exercise my particular grace gift in the context of many others exercising their grace gift. Uh, It's a beautiful thing. Um, This spins into accountabilities. I'm still on my first point, the uniqueness. This spins into accountabilities. Organisations... Secular organisations speak of the need to have accountability structures for their leaders. You can never set up an accountability structure for me that will come close to guarding me like the one I carry with me every day. I'll have to answer to the Great Shepherd. I don't care what your accountability group does. <laughs> You've you got to think into that somewhat differently than the secular environment might encourage us to do. I do think there's a place for all of those structures in some fashion, but they've got to be different. Second point. Leadership is still leadership. God has appointed men to lead under him and lead we must if we're to guard, protect and feed and build his church. We are to be leaders. And let me give you a definition that I operate with as a leader. Um, there's lot, you see lots of definitions around the place. Here's mine. My definition is simple. It's moving people towards a goal they otherwise wouldn't move towards themselves. I think a leader is someone who moves people towards a goal that they otherwise wouldn't go to towards themselves. Do you see? If they're already going to go there, I'm just a facilitator, do you see? But I'm a leader. It therefore has a dimension of authority necessarily built into it. Now, I get that from the language of shepherd, where if you chase back through to Numbers 27, Psalm 2, all kinds of contexts where the language of shepherd is used, shepherd is regularly expressed in the context of authority and submission. And the New Testament is no different. Um, Now, I offer that these first two principles that flow out of the eschatological context of leadership is so the side-by-side leadership pointing us all to our true shepherd on trust, the fact that we still need to lead and direct and take people somewhere. I think the challenge in church planting is this, that um, early on in church planting, you need to dial towards being the leader. And your aim, I think, is to dial towards being more alongside. You've got to to manage this dynamic of leadership possibilities and the way I exercise it to bring people to their great shepherd. And sometimes it's more directive and I'm the one who knows where we should go and are persuading you to get there. And sometimes it's us together working out what we should be doing and how you've got to actually, in the early stages of planting, my experience was certainly the case, and it'd be interesting to hear Toby reflect on this, that uh, I, was, I had to operate much more in persuasion, direct, diplomatically mode. And you've got to operate aware of your context. Third, the leadership goal, given eschatological leadership, the leadership goal is unique. There's a sense in which we're temporary under-shepherds with an authority to lead the people of God somewhere, which is all leadership has to lead you somewhere, 
A to B. That's why we have leaders, to get me from A to B. But the B is utterly unique. All leadership is concerned with taking people from one point to another. It's concerned with making a difference, moving people. All leadership is aware that if you don't pay attention to those that you lead and care for them and build them up and improve them, you won't actually get that group to be. I've heard the illustration of a car. You buy a car to get you from A to B, but if you don't pay attention to maintaining the car, it won't keep getting you from A to B. Organisations, secular organisations, have woken up to the fact that if they don't pay attention to the people, the car, then the organisation, the people, won't get you where you want to get to, which is B. You've got to pay attention, you've got to care, you've got to support, you've got to maintain and grow. But here's the thing, the uniqueness of Christian leadership is that the B is the maintenance. Do you know what I mean? This community of people that I'm leading, the B, where I'm leading them towards, is them knowing their shepherd. It's not producing some other thing. It's producing Christ-likeness in them. It's transforming them, moving them as a community to know their Lord, to trust their Lord and not look to me. It's moving them to actually know their shepherd more intimately as God sent the Lord Jesus to actually achieve for them by the Spirit and the work of the cross. You see, in a sense, therefore, we are about the development of the car. (laughs) which makes Christian leadership intensely personal. It's not intensely personal in that I must know every person personally, as I've heard some writers express it, that pastoral leadership shepherding is meant to be intensely personal. The conclusion, therefore, is that you must know every name in your church, you must be in their houses. No, I don't think that's what follows. Moses is the shepherd. Isaiah 63, he had a tough job getting to know every name. Uh, No, no, shepherding doesn't require that, but it is nonetheless intensely personal in that it's about people. It's about every person coming to know their Lord and shepherd. It's about every man, every person being impacted by their Lord. That's why the qualification for Christian leadership is so heavily weighted towards character, Christian leaders are leading a people towards a transformed life where they're seeking to have their values changed, their priorities changed, their heart changed, uh, the things they care about, the way they spend their time changed and transformed. That's what Christian leadership is leading towards. That's the B we're after. And Christian leadership, therefore, must exemplify where I'm taking people to because my model is part of the power of Christian leadership, which is not necessarily the case in secular world. That's why the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and so on are common. You go through them, they're common of all Christians, but they're to be exemplified in the Christian leader. Last, secular, uh, seeing eschatological movement The place in history in which we sit, salvation history, clarifies the goals even further of Christian leadership. 
We're about changing lives. We're about seeing people become Christ-like. We're about seeing people know their shepherd intimately and walk with him and look to him and, and, and find their comfort and hope and confidence in him and obey him. That's what we're about, change lives. But more particularly, given the time in history we're in, eschatological leadership, we're about the multiplication of changed lives. The increase in the number of people who are brought personally to their shepherd. Last passage. Have a look with me at 1 Timothy 6. And read that when you get home and now turn to 2 Timothy 4. (laughs) Have a look at uh, verse 7. I have fought the good fight... Everyone now, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only for me, but all who have longed for his appearing. Do you see how captivated he is by the return of Christ, by how much it matters that Christ is coming back by the end times? Um, you have a look down there in verse 17. The Lord has stood by my side and given me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the liar's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. In the pastorals, in the letters where he's concerned about pastoral leadership and eldership and management of his people's church, of the church, he, he is dominated by eschatology. He's dominated by the end times. He's dominated by the return of Christ. Friends, when the great shepherd will separate the sheep from the goats and the sheep will enter into eternal life and the goats will be burned, friends, you cannot do Christian leadership without that eschatological context in mind. It shapes the way you do it. We cannot just be about maintaining. Yes, we we shepherd, we lead, we care, we nurture, we feed those that we have. But if we're to be like the great shepherd in the context of the end times within within which we exist, we must be driven to seek and save the lost, to gather those from all nations. Eschatological leadership. There you go. I don't know how long I took. But it was worth it, wasn't it?